the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to welcome to the show Jason Bedrick. Among other things, he is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and their Center for Education Policy. I was talking to you all earlier about his piece in um, in the Wall Street Journal. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs wants to turn back the clock on school choice. And with it, a lot of other things, too. Jason is the author of several books and papers, and he knows of what he speaks in this area as well as a practitioner, having uh, been himself a state legislator. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. You betcha. You betcha. I was I, I, I was kind of setting this up a little bit last hour with the audience, talking about these major declines we saw from the uh, what, what people like you would call NAEP or what I explain as the nation's report card that we saw over the COVID shutdowns and how it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of innovation, a lot of a lot of effort to get us back up to where we were, which wasn't that great in the first place, but at least it was fairly stable with incremental growth. And one of those innovations and one of those things that we would need most, one would think, would be the kind of thing that our new uh, governor in Arizona is trying to cancel. Set this up for us. Talk to us a little bit about the history of ESAs here in Arizona and what we're dealing with in your op-ed. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, Arizona has been a pioneer for school choice for decades now. Uh, Arizona uh, was one of the first states to adopt charter schools, which are essentially public-private partnerships, uh, privately managed, publicly funded schools. Uh, and then in the late 90s, Arizona was the first state to adopt tax credit scholarships, uh, where families can apply to a scholarship organization uh, and then use those funds uh, to go to a private school. And then in 2011, Arizona moved from school choice to education choice. Uh, with the ESA, families get 90% of the state portion of per-pupil funding. And they can use it for a wide variety of things, not just private school. They can use it for homeschool curricula, online learning, tutoring, textbooks, special needs therapy, and more. And uh, there's also an incentive to save. If they have unused funds at the end of the year, it rolls over so they can save for future expenses. This so really you can build a family. nest egg for your education in an educational account that you could then apply, like, for example, if you, are a seventh, if you have a seventh grader or an eighth grader and you're looking at a different kind of high school, you could, that might cost a little more money. You can save those funds into that, right? Yes, exactly. Right. And so families can really customize their child's mm -hmm. education. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way to think about it. Families can customize their education. And this was universally expanded, what, about a year ago by the governor and legislature here? Yes, 2022. Uh, when the program was enacted in 2011, it was just for students with special needs. Uh, it's been expanded a number of times over the years, you know, to kids who are assigned to low performing schools or on Native American reservations and so on. Uh, but last year, Governor Ducey and the legislature expanded it to all kids. Uh, but now Governor Hobbs, without even being in office for a week, uh, de declared in her state of the state 
that she was going to uh, come after the program. She wants to roll it back uh, and get rid of the expansion. Now, there's so much to this. Let's deal with the financial part of this, because it's the thing that I think resonates most with people and wrongly, that it costs the state money. Um, You started off here by saying it's about 90 percent of what we pay per pupil or what we expend per pupil in Arizona. Talk to us about how it actually can thus be a net savings. Yeah, so it's 90% of the state portion, right. uh, and that's not including the federal portion or the local portion. Right. Uh, and so Arizona is spending uh, between twelve and $13,000 per pupil on average at its public schools. Uh, these kids are getting about $7,000 on average. And we've seen a shift away from uh, traditional public schools toward charter schools, ESAs, tax credit scholarships. So actually, uh, we are, based on the 2019 projections, uh, we are actually saving, as a state, about $500 million from students who are switching out of the more expensive public sector and going into these uh, other less expensive options where the students are still getting uh, what they need. This is one of the great myths of school choice when done right, when done the way Arizona does it. One of the great myths is that it's actually costing money. It's actually saving the state money. Right. So, I mean, Katie Hobbs only wants to look at how much each uh, education savings account costs, but she's not looking at the corresponding savings. And so it's actually saving money while providing students what they need. Right. Because there is a federal portion of money that comes in probably what is most of that Title I probably. But there is a portion of federal money that comes in. And then, of course, as you put it, uh, you have your local property taxes and, and those funds as well, right? That's correct. And all the local funds stay with the local schools, right. uh, as do all the federal funds, which are about 8% of, uh, of, spend, of funding per pupil on average. So it then raises the next question, which is why would anyone, much less a governor who, you know, um, wants to bill him or herself as, you know, an education governor, every governor wants to do that, begs the question, why would they want to go down this road? Why would they want to turn back the clock on this expansion of choice? I mean, look, Katie Hobbs has been very closely aligned with the teachers' unions. Uh, She even appointed uh, the president of the state's teachers' union and another longtime lobbyist uh, to her transition team. Uh, They form an important part of her coalition, and uh, they don't want any competition. They don't want any alternatives to the system that they run. Uh, They want to keep families essentially trapped in their schools. And so they see this as uh, a threat because... Families uh, are using this option. Uh, we went from 10,000 students in the program last year to 45,000. Uh, and, and it's worth noting that the expansion only went into effect after uh, school started this year, so a lot during the academic year. So it's a tremendously popular among families, um, but not among political coalition. Yeah, and 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 I was making that point too. It's rare that you can get such an immediate verdict on public policy, especially, you know, major public policy or even innovative public policy. You know, usually you have to do take some time to, you know, study what's going on uh, or what the effects are. But here, I mean, that kind of 400% expansion by parents, by parents making that decision, that tells you something about the quality of the schools their kids are in and the desperateness with which they want to liberate them, it seems to me, quite quickly. Yeah, I think a lot of families have uh, woken up to the need for choice during the pandemic. Uh, 
uh, not really because of the pandemic itself uh, so much as the, the response to the pandemic, uh, seeing you know, that that's, you know, even when parents were ready and willing to send their kids back to school, uh, if the teachers' unions were strong in that area and they wanted the school closed, the school, the school stayed closed. Uh, parents were also concerned about what they saw on Zoom school, whether it was the low quality of the education uh, or the politicization of the classroom. And they said, you know, we've had enough of this. I want to choose a school that aligns with my family's values uh, and really meets my kids where they are and challenges them. We're talking with Jason Bedrick. He had a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs wants to turn back the clock on school choice. He is a research uh, fellow with the um, Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. Jason, the other thing that was interesting about this um, about this legislation is it took away another talking point. Uh, there's several talking points uh, that are a- antipathetic towards school choice. One of them is it costs the state money or it costs the education system money. You've proven that that's not the case. The other one has to do with only benefiting. It ends up only benefiting people who already are doing very well. And this was written in a way uh, that kind of dispels that myth as well, right? I mean, th- this this is this is not a system designed particularly just for those who already have a lot of money, right? Right. Look, the well-off already had school choice. Uh, they could either choose to live in a school district uh, that had higher-performing public schools, or they could pay for private school tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, by expanding this to everyone, the, the, the people who most benefit from school choice programs are those who are the most choice deprived right. before the program right. went into existence. Right. Now, it doesn't, uh, I, I, this is literally a question, so I, I, I don't mean this peremptorily I, as a question. Because you take advantage of the $7,000 empowerment scholarship, it doesn't necessarily mean you automatically get into the school you want, particularly if it's a private one, or does it? It doesn't, right? No, it doesn't. You still have uh, so to meet those other criteria and standards. Correct. You still have to meet those criteria. So when I talk about school choice, which I, I, I'm, I've been supportive of forever, I also like to point out, I think I'm right in pointing this out, I'll throw this as a question to you as well, that, you know, sometimes the choice isn't necessarily, and oftentimes it's not necessarily, a private school as opposed to a public school. I hate to say it, but it is eminently true that some private schools just aren't that very good and aren't worthy of their name and maybe worse than some public schools, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, just because you have choice, all choices are meaningful, right? Correct. Uh, you know, you could have a school that is very high performing, that is a public school and meets the needs of a lot of kids there, although it's also the case that uh, for one particular kid who might be assigned to that school, it just might not be the best fit. Correct. Uh, you can have in both sectors, uh, high performing or low performing schools. The real question isn't public versus private. It's what's the best fit for an individual child. Right, right, right. What are you seeing, Jason, on an attendant issue which goes towards curriculum? You know, um, a lot of people were very upset with uh, teachers walking out of public schools during the Red for Ed movement a couple few years back. A lot of people were upset with the way schools handled COVID, but a lot of them were upset with the curriculum, too. What kind of choice do you see in Arizona particularly available for parents 
who are kind of sick of the left wing, if you will, if I may, uh, the kind of left wing CRT sexualization of children. Is that is that pretty dominant in Arizona schools or have we been fairly fortunate to have missed what some of the nightmare scenarios are we've been reading about nationally? I mean, I would say it's it's certainly worse in, in you know San Francisco and, and certain places around the country, but uh, uh, parents shouldn't be complacent either. There have been a number of instances where parents are uncovering uh, incredibly radical material yeah. that their kids are bringing home from school uh, with you know no countervailing um, opinions. I mean, right. It's just sort of uh, almost indoctrination. Uh, that's why it's so important that we have curriculum transparency that so that parents can know what's going on in their kid's school. And homeschooling, um, which grew um, over the course of COVID and over the course of the learning about these kinds of curricular issues, um, but it's still important to note it's a very small part of the education system, isn't it? It's small, but it is growing. Okay. Uh, and, and actually, Arizona has a fairly high uh, percentage of students uh, compared to the nation uh, and, and, you know, that are homeschooling, uh, especially in rural areas. It's interesting to me, you know, um, for a country whose corporations can seem to move on dimes and changing things at the uh, at the turn of a turn of a switch, how hard it has been to get education generally, education to innovate, education to change. But we are going to need it in a big and bad way, aren't we, especially given what we have seen with not just the mental Ill, uh, health issues, which is kind of where I focus my stuff, but really on the learning loss, which was not a myth. That was real, right? Oh, the learning loss was very much real. Uh, and, I mean, we don't have uh, concrete evidence, but there's a lot of very suggestive evidence that, uh, on the whole, school systems where kids were able to have in-person instruction fared better than the ones that uh, closed down. Uh, and you know, this is again, this it goes to a matter of choice. You know, if, if families only have one option, uh, they're a captive audience. But where they had lots of options, where they could take their money and leave, they tended to stay open, which is why the private sector was much more likely um, than the government-run schools to remain open during COVID or to open up faster. How far do you expect? Uh, Governor Hobbs to get with this. Uh, the legislature is in in Republican hands, but by a thread. Um, are they the ones who can stop this? I guess so. It's a budgetary issue, I'm guessing, right? Yes, they will have to hang together on this one. Uh, but so far, they seem united. Uh, I mean, it's it's, it's not always been the case, it. by the way, right? Repu- we've had to fight <laughs> Republicans a lot on school choice over the years in the past. Anyway, that's uh, that's true. Uh, I, I will say that the three Republicans who were you know wishy washy on school choice and sometimes voted against school choice last year have all been replaced. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a much more pro school choice legislature. And the uh, the legislator who sponsored the ESA expansion legislation last year, uh, Ben Toma, is now the Speaker of the House. So, so this I don't is think going to be going a, to let, yeah, you're going to have to cross the yeah, Speaker of the House to cross this Rubicon. I gotcha. That's right. Well, Jason, stay close with us on this. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, we'll keep uh, keep our listeners uh, updated. And thank you very much for your op-ed, which I think, you know, folks, you want to learn about what's effectively going on here, what the numbers are and what the politics are. Take a look at Jason Bedrick and Corey DeAngelis' piece in the, Arizona, in the uh, Wall Street Journal. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs wants to turn back the clock on school choice. Jason, thank you so much. Great update and great column. 
Thank you. You betcha. I am Seth Liebson. Uh, anything on your mind? 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Thank you, uh, Monty Python. That uh, that is a welcome back. That's a setup to this really kind of interesting story in the Spectator: why lumberjacks are happy and you are not. Uh, Teresa Mole writes: the results the results are in, and nature, i.e., God, wins again. A Bureau of Labor Statistics survey has found that lumberjacks and farmers are the happiest, least stressed, and most fulfilled workers, further evidencing that everything we need to be joyful and satisfied in this life is not man-made, nor does it have much, if anything, in common with the prevailing culture. A Washington Post analysis of the survey noted the most meaningful and happiness-inducing activities were religious and spiritual, followed by the second happiest activity, sports, exercise, and recreation. Boy, you think about what was killed during COVID, just when we were going through the most depressing times <laughs> in our country. Um, religious churches shut down, synagogues shut down, gyms. And um, didn't they shut down? Didn't they prevent you from even running at your local public school track? By myself in a community college. Yeah, at a community college. Okay, uh, as Teresa Mole writes, I am fond of harping about how a godless society is a miserable one, but Erica Anderson noted in the USA Today last year how broad-based evidence demonstrates that attendance at worship services is indispensable to a happy, generous, and flourishing society. And yet, and yet, despite resounding proof of religion's benefits, American church attendance fell below 50% for the first time last year. According to Gallup, think about that. Think about a country that just went for the first time below 50 percent in um, in uh, in church attendance. The health benefits of time spent outdoors are also well known as our attention span continues to shrink. Research shows that going outdoors and spending time in nature can help improve attention span in as little as 20 minutes. Nature also reduces stress, boosts mood, boosts mood and engages all the senses at once. It's the same with sports, exercise, and recreation. For 12 or more of our formidable years, we had it drilled into us, eat healthy and exercise. P.E. was mandatory in school. We know what to do to be our healthiest, happiest selves, but we're looking for joy in all the wrong places, ignoring the obvious needs of our species as they are no longer in front of our eyes. As society becomes softer and more entitled, and as we slog further from our ancestral roots, more inclined to dismiss the simple, unchanging truths about mankind, that the the earth was made for us and we were made to be in and of the earth. Technology isn't all bad, but it's meant to enhance our existence, not define or consume it. What I find most intriguing about the post-reporting in the labor statistics study is that lumberjacks and those working in agriculture and farming reported the highest levels of enjoyment on the job. Also the highest levels of pain on the job, which tells you that pain isn't necessarily the opposite of happiness and joy. It's just that, you know, you're going to be living in the world and doing these, you know, serious jobs. You're going to have a little pain here and there. Anyway, I love this. Uh, I, I just love this story. I love it. Lumberjacks are happy and you're not. Uh, you know what it goes to a little bit too? 
that whole thing about what the Pediatrics Academy did with obesity last week. Say a word on that when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Putting a few things together here, that report on working outdoors leading to major uh, levels, much, much greater levels of happiness than uh, working indoors for a living. Uh, church and uh, synagogue uh, attendance uh, leading uh, to happier lives than not. And, of course, exercise, uh, along with the story having to do with obesity uh, rates that came out last week, along with a lot of stories I've been talking about that seemingly just come for a day and then move quickly beyond us. And then the story I wrote about in the Washington Times this week um, that's been getting some play on social media and elsewhere, that we have reached a uh, new high point of uh, illegal and dangerous drug use in this country. Um, And it's made no headlines. Uh, We have some serious public health issues going on. Elisa Finley did a great job. She's a great writer at The Wall Street Journal. She did a great job. On the child obesity story, we are now, according to the American Academy of PT of Pediatrics, going to take 12 and 13 year olds and not and recommend for them, according to the Academy, uh, both medications and surgery rather than emphasize lifestyle and diet to combat obesity. It's not as if obesity is not a problem. It is a major problem. Uh, The share of five to 11 year olds classified as obese ballooned by nearly 40 percent during covid 40 percent about one in every four kids is considered obese and the aap the american academy of pediatrics recommended weight loss drugs and bariatric surgery for adolescents and teens for the first time saying we should no longer talk about it as a diet or lifestyle issue such interventions um like medicating children, have become the go-to solution for common problems, not only with obesity, but also anxiety and impulse control. Do you realize how much medication we're giving children for things like anxiety and impulse control rather than, I mean, it is necessary, of course, in certain cases, as probably medication is in certain obesity cases as well, but it, it should not be the go-to. It should not be the default. And this is not about politics, which is what the AAP is saying it is. Um, According to the CDC, the prevalence of obesity is nearly twice as high in children from low- and middle-income households as in higher-income ones. Obesity rates are on average 5 to 7% higher among Hispanic and black children than white. Government has tried and failed to reduce such disparities through various structures. Liberals have pushed to boost food stamp benefits in the hope that the poor would use the extra money to buy healthier food. By and large, they didn't. As food stamp benefits tripled in size over two decades, Americans got larger. One study found that the diets of low-income Americans who didn't receive food stamps improved significantly more than those who did. Liberals have pressed to expand government health coverage. Now about half children are covered by public insurance. That hasn't made kids healthier either. Public schools don't teach P.E. or health any better than they do math or reading, it turns out. Students score as poorly on physical fitness as they do 
and other subjects. Schools, no doubt, she writes, would reply that kids spend only six hours a day in their walls and parents have the responsibility to make sure they're not scarfing down pizzas and Cheetos the rest of the time. Still, why don't schools and health care providers do more to educate parents and kids about nutrition and the dangers of society? Well, because the AAP says, quote, there is a danger of stigmatizing children with obesity and their families on the basis of race or ethnicity. Nonsense. Nonsense. You know, the, the number of things we are no longer able to be talking about is fast increasing. So we can't talk about obesity. My gosh, during COVID, we couldn't certainly talk about obesity. And that was one of the major indicators that an age for having a serious health consequence of obtaining COVID. And now we can't talk about it at all without offending people along racial lines either. The things we aren't talking about we should be, the rise in illegal drug use, the new high watermark, a 44-year high, the things we can't talk about we should be talking about, the things we are talking about they don't want us to talk about. Hell Hell of a situation we're in here when it comes to our public health and politics. What was it Glenn Fry said when they hired Joe Walsh to form the Eagles? Glenn Fry said he was two of the most interesting people I ever met. <laughs> Heck of a guitarist, though, huh? Um, all right, we've done uh, a lot here. But the one thing I wanted to get to as well, this piece on China and Mike Gallagher. You know, I, I often, um, Mike Gallagher, the congressman, not the uh, radio host colleague of ours, uh you will often hear me say, and and maybe it's it's a bit too cynical, and I I don't mean it to be too cynical, but it it's just been my experience that you know we have what some two hundred and twenty or so Republicans representing us in Congress, and how many of us can name more than five that we think are really you know top notch excellent? I think it's hard. I think it's hard to get there. Um, but one of them, and I'm going to tell you to watch for, is uh, from Wisconsin, this Mike Gallagher. I think he's as impressive, uh, he is impressive as heck. It, it, I can say it. He's impressive as hell. And um, Dominich has the, Ben Dominich has this great piece in The Spectator about him and China. You know, we're talking a lot about China and the Bidens. Um, we need to about, talk about China and the world. We need to be talking about China and America more generally. Uh, Ben writes, if the question in 2017 at the start of the Trump administration was whether opposition to China was the right position, the question in 2023 is how far that opposition should go. How we got here is a tale of China's ratcheted insults and economic acceleration that reached a uh, tipping point in the past four years. There was the failure of the narrative advanced by Bill Clinton in 1997. China was not despite his hopes, integrated in the family of nations by trade relations, nor did it come to respect human rights. Instead, the Chinese regime prosecuted the genocide of the Uyghurs, the destruction of Hong Kong's independence, and the de facto seizure of the South China Sea. Uh, In a major strategic miscalculation, Xi Jinping's regime deprived Western elites of the flexibility to maintain their good relations cover story by targeting them, their businesses and their political leaders, the repeated theft of intellectual property, expansionist mineral grabs across the globe, and outright seizure of company assets undermine their status as a trustworthy trading partner. And then 
there have been the embarrassing uh, diplomatic errors like the ill-conceived decision to humiliate Barack Obama at Hangzhou Airport during the 2016 G20 meeting. Um, He goes into a little bit of that. Um, But the Chinese regime has taken an aggressive approach in almost every field possible, just as its status around the world has been growing more and more divisive. We need to obviously hold hearings on all of this, including the pandemic, but nearly all of America's foreign policy elites have been willing to make excuses for China so long as they kept making money and were not themselves targeted by the PRC apparatus. Um, His choice to announce a no-limits partnership with Vladimir Putin a week before the Ukraine invasion amounted to the formation of an anti-American, anti-NATO axis. And Xi's decision to return Chinese governance to the Mao-era dictator for life system affirmed in November's party Congress, has crushed the last remaining hopes for any kind of incremental liberalization. And then, of course, there is the pandemic. The emerging majority opinion, notwithstanding pushback from the likes of Anthony Fauci, is that a leak from a Chinese lab is the likeliest cause of its spread. And the response to this leak was made massively worse by Chinese officials' lies, incompetence, and censorship. If you believe millions of deaths and years of misery were caused by the CCP, P, shouldn't there be consequences for that also? Is there going to be accountability for that also? Um, Today, the pandemic drives the popular American understanding of China. Many American citizens outside the political and business elite already blame China for the hollowing out of the American industrial base and note note its land grabs in the American heartland. In addition, the PRC has taken on the role of cultural war aggressor. The past few years brought one incident after another. LeBron James in the NBA, John Cena, Apple, where American companies and celebrities kowtow to their would-be overlords in the PRC. They even came for the Taiwan flag on the jacket in Top Gun Maverick, which uh, Tom Cruise did not let them come for. He beat them back. Thus... Fulfilling the desire to investigate all these things and put a put a light on it is Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Um, Gallagher uh, is Senate, uh, uh, Gallagher is going to be uh, heading all kinds of investigations into China, and this guy is a smarty. Oh my gosh, is he a smarty? PhD from Georgetown, Marine Corps veteran, and he out and. Uh, He's someone who calls uh, who who says that we are in a new Cold War with communist China. The stakes are existential. Direct quote. We need to win it. It's a military and economic and ideological competition. But part of winning it means you have to be uh, you have to understand the primacy of hard as well as soft power. So, you know, get ready um, for not just investigations into Biden and China, but China and China. And China and America and China and American corporations and the obsequious and greed of Hollywood and the NBA and China. Is the NBA worse than the NFL when it comes to China? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, it is. Anyway, uh, watch for this guy. Keep an eye out on Mike Gallagher. I'm going to try and get him on the show. He's the chair of the new House Committee on uh, People's Republic of China. That's a great thing. That is a great, great move. Um, Anyway, we'll have one more congressman we can uh, 
we can look to in our pantheon of, <laughs> I say sarcastically, pantheon of great Republican congressmen and congresswomen in uh, in the new Congress. If if you know of any um, that you know we aren't putting any attention on in this show that should and deserve more light, uh, more of a hearing, more of an airing, let me know. Uh, but I'm going to work on uh, getting Gallagher on the congressman, not the radio host. We'll be right back. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. Portfolio, you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate up to 10.25%, 10.25%. A due diligence approved firm. You can check why refi out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. Never a sales pitch. I was just remarking to a friend, we are uh, seemingly fast becoming uh, the kind of country uh, we used to send missionaries to. Um, and uh, if there was another story here I really wanted to get to before we talk to Wilfred Riley in the next hour, um, I guess John Hinderocker probably has the best uh, wrap-up on it, reparations for all. Uh, there's a task force in the state of California working on a proposal to pay reparations to all of the state's black residents to the tune of $800,000 a resident. But that's chump change compared with what is being demanded in San Francisco. The city of San Francisco appointed a, uh, an African-American reparations advisory committee, which delivered its draft plan in December. He embeds it below. And, uh, boy, it's going to be big, $5 million apiece. $5 million apiece. This after California just announced its massive budget deficits. Remember a year ago when people were telling me to get off Newsom? He had California in a surplus. Yeah, no. Wilford Riley, the great Wilford Riley, coming right up. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 